I still remember uh, in this uh, nearby village, there was another doctor. I was, what, 21, 22 at the time. And uh, this, uh, my colleague, the senior colleague, he was almost 90 years old. And in 1990, it means that he saw all the ills of 20th century. He survived through it. And he still had, he was not philosopher. He was doctor and the real wise. He lived and served to this little community of 1,000 villagers. And they knew that if they, can, they can make mistakes. They can make bad things. But when they need support, when they need rectification, they can always go to this doctor. I still remember that everyone called his Kuzmovich, so by his patronymic. So Kuzmovich will help you out. He will help you survive the hangover, the intoxication, the bad disease. And then he will give you a wise, uh, wise uh, advice. And this would make your life a little bit easier. So for me, uh, people like Kuzmovich is actually the, the real heroes who live their own life in authentic way, but also help others to overcome non-authentic uh, influences. This podcast shows that Ukraine is not what foreigners see on television. In reality, Ukrainian people are much better, much more interesting and friendly than other people expect. This podcast is about the real life, experiences, work, and personalities of Ukrainian people with a focus on the capital, Kiev, so that foreigners discover the positive truth about Ukraine, hear the voices of Ukrainians, visit the country, and invest in the economy, creating more opportunities for the younger Ukrainian generations to stay and build their country. Hello, my name is Aziz and I have a deep connection with Ukraine. My grandfather volunteered in 1987 to help clean the Chernobyl chemical radiation because he believed in humanity. Actually, he was such a great, wonderful man. He was part of the independence of two different countries as well, not Ukraine, but another part of the world. He was a real hero for me and even though he struggled with cancer after that for the rest of his life, he always told me so many great things about Ukraine and its people. Then from 2018 to 2019, for two years, I began working with UNICEF in Ukraine to help build orphanages for the children who lost their families in the war. I couldn't return to Ukraine in 2020 because of COVID-19. So this project is my volunteer work to help Ukraine and thank you all so much for the support. This podcast now is ranking number one on Apple Podcasts about Ukraine. Top 100 travel podcasts in Switzerland, top 60 travel podcasts in the United Kingdom, top 30 in the Netherlands, top 25 on Apple Russia and top 20 on Apple Poland. And I'm sure many, many Ukrainians abroad are listening right now and connecting back with their country. My guest today is Mikhail. Okay, I will say it again because I want to respect your name fully. My guest today is Mikhail Minakov from lecturing at the National University of Kiev, Mohila Academy, to being a visiting professor at Harvard University. 
from being a Fulbright Canon Institute scholar to the president of the Foundation for the Good Politics to the CEO of the Eastern European Consulting Group to now being the principal for Ukraine at Canon Institute and publishes a philosophical column on the Koine community, a platform bringing voices of philosophers to wider audiences. Mikhail, how are you today? Uh, thank you very much, Abdulaziz. I feel fine and looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be great, wonderful, and I'm going to start it in a totally different way. What has been on your mind lately that you are thinking about or a problem you are trying to solve that relates somehow, some way to Ukraine? Well, basically, as a philosopher, it's the, the major issue that I see for Ukraine and all countries in my region is that we are slowly entering into a permanent state of war. So since 2008, when the Russian-Georgian war started, the spirit of war has been entering the lungs and the brains of people living in the Eastern Europe. And in 2014, we peaked it in Ukraine. And it seems that new wars are being blended up right now in other countries of the region. So basically, if we look like 30 years ago when the Eastern Bloc was dissolved, there was an expectation that all these nations, nations between Vienna and Beijing, are entering new era of peaceful coexistence and development and freedom. Now, 30 years later, we are witnessing the period of wars and hatred. So this is why we, we I mean, philosophers uh, started, launched the project that is called the Koine community, Koine as this common language of the Greek tribes' policies. So we started this project, Koine community, to bring together philosophers and discuss the foundational, the fundamental issues that exist in our region. Thank you. One second, because this is going to be exciting. And of course, I am sure we will speak about philosophical topics, but I want to speak about you more of how you think. I am sensing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the verbs you're using are very, very visual. So mm -hmm. one thing, do you see the world? I imagine you see the map of those countries like you spoke about with a part from Beijing until Austria, or I think Germany, I'm not really sure which uh, city you yeah. use there. And I imagine you see the map there, you almost see the changes throughout the 30 years and you project and predict the future. And then as a philosopher looking through those changes, you extrapolate the whole curve uh, that of what will happen next and maybe different scenarios and you speak about them and allow input from other philosophers to enrich the conversation by modulating as well as shaping which scenario you view as more likely. Is this a fair assessment of how you think? Yes, probably quite fair, Abdulaziz. Thank you. Well, for me, uh, in order to make an influence on hearts and minds of people living in these areas, 
is actually to, to work together. A philosopher from Kiev cannot make an influence on Minsk or Chelyabinsk, or a philosopher from Tumen cannot make an impetus uh, or influence on the brains of Odessa. But if we work together, it can actually change the picture. It's actually uh, interesting that uh, earlier today I had a conversation with several colleagues, philosophers from China and India, who are also entering into the period of wars. Uh, they sense that uh, the, the tensions between the two countries are entering a very risky situation. So they were asking me if they can join uh, the Kainia community, and of course they can. We are open for this. But that's interesting how our attempt to find common language and start the dialogue is also growing somewhere else in, in the countries and in the regions about which I or many of my colleagues don't know much. Of course, we read the philosophers of the ancient times from India and China, but with the contemporary colleagues, it's something new. For me, it's really something very inspiring when South-South conversation starts without intervention from the North or from the West. I love what you're saying. And let's go back to a metaphor of you spoke about the common language between the Greek tribes. If my understanding is fair, that is your most favorite period in history. And in some way, you view it as a metaphor of those tribes who need to be united together against some common threat. For example, in that time, it was the Persian invasions. And if they didn't unite together, they will die separately and be annihilated. But now it's more of a northern intervention or anything, something like that. And therefore, in a way, that South-South, like you said, is the modern day reincarnation where history repeats itself and of the Greek tribes or cities that needed to communicate together. And you as a philosopher, you are somewhat of the translator and the bridge through the different cultures. And you are the embodiment of that common language. Is this correct, my understanding? Or can you add more? Yes, I would say that <clears throat> no one can be an embodiment of this common language. But while we, we live and we think, we can try and make a difference also in finding common denominators for different cultures and communities. So in a way, uh, there will always be hostility. There will always be conflict between the communities, within the communities, and between individualities, or even within us individuals. So we, we, have, we, we are very contradictory by nature, human beings and human communities. So what we can do is to limit the harm, to reduce the, the harm that we can do to each other or to ourselves through productive and honest and respectful dialogue. And this is something that really lacks. I'm looking to, to the debates of my colleagues in the United States right now, the solid philosophers, sociologists, political scientists, who were very brave and open yet 10 years ago, five years ago. Today, the level of polarization is so deep that they follow our Ukrainian, Eastern European path 
and they become somewhat unable to the dialogue. So this effort, this uh, goodwill, strong and long goodwill is needed more and more, not only in uh, the Eastern Europe, but also in other regions. So far, Western Europe seems to be blessed. Here, the infrastructure of dialogue is quite strong due to the generation that came after the World War II. They, they spent the, the, the lifetime of entire generation to make sure that French and Germans will not kill each other anymore. Of course, there's a risk that the hostility will return, but so far, this uh, construction that people like Monet, like uh, many others, like Kozhev, the, the, the minds behind this infrastructure, they made an impact for several generations. But each generation is responsible for the lifetime of the next one. So all I can do is to offer others to work together, to offer ideas and solutions, and, uh, well, seek for the uh, common language. And of course, you just mentioned, Abdulaziz, that uh, ancient Greece was united against the common uh, enemy. But in reality, uh, it was actually the, the period when the Persian, this Asian uh, civilization and culture, was very attractive to at least a half of Greece. So Greece was not united against uh, the Persia, it was divided because of Persian or Asian cultural uh, presence. Well, the, the moment when uh, people and, and the Greeks themselves could unite was to find principles, co common principles, when enemies, eternal enemies like Athens and Sparta uh, could find something very important. And that was not the outside uh, enemy but inside a common good. So it's only the common good that can bring people to dialogue and peaceful uh, coexistence and to uh, trust. I love what you're saying. And if I were to say it, please correct me whether this is a wrong understanding. For you, look, the world, for example, in North America or specifically in the USA, is really, really divided through polarization, which is very similar to what you spoke about, that the ancient Greeks were divided by the outsider. And polarization is a form of creating an in-group, an out-group, and what comes out of that is division, not dialogue. But when people can find a common denominator, like you mentioned in modern times, or you use the word uh, uh, common principles in ancient times, when we look for what unites us, whether that is a language like the community you spoke about, or the beliefs, or the ways that we look for what is shared in order to build a future that will be better rather than succumb to the division of war, which creates other and creates an enemy and therefore stops dialogue, the better the future will be and that Ukraine is in many ways ahead of the U.S. in this, because that whole region, people are opening up to commonalities and dialogues and places as different culturally as uh, Ukraine, India, and China are being 
and finding now common points in order to have that open dialogue that comes from goodwill, respect, and being open to look for what is common and that Western Europe has been somewhat blessed that after World War II, a lot of infrastructure and deep thinkers have thought this through and put the, in place a cultural bias towards dialogue and finding commonalities so that the French and German, for example, don't go to war again. But of course, it's always every day, every minute is a new beginning, a new responsibility for us to not function and go through that. What you mentioned is whether internally, even within us, there is the potential and the existence of conflict. But even through that, we have to elevate ourselves and transcend that to find the commonalities in order to have harmony and not fall prey to the war possibilities of war or new era of war. Is this a fair understanding? Yes, Abdulaziz, it is. Well, the both of us uh, have worked within the UN families, uh, the UN family of agencies, right? You worked with uh, UNICEF, I worked with the uh, United Nations Development Program, and currently I am not an employee of United Nations in, uh, Agency, but I am a, an or, honorable tolerance envoy. So in a way, my philosophy is supported by an organization that was created 75 years ago, a little bit more already, to prevent the return of the world wars to, to life. So if we look for the 75 years of more or less peace, a long peace uh, among nations, uh, it shows that people can actually find uh, the common rules that diminish the risk, they diminish the harm of wars. But at the same time, the wars still were going on. There were wars for independence. There were wars between several nations. What UN managed to do is to avoid the global war so far. At the same time, uh, part of the UN projects is the so-called the, the nuclear war the, or the atom war uh, watch. And this clock shows how close we are to the uh, midnight of the war when uh, humanity can extinguish itself, to destroy itself uh, totally. And recently, this watch shows that we are very, very, very close, much closer than, let's say, 10, 15 years ago to this midnight. So in a way, uh, this watch, this, this optics that United Nations creates, it shows us that we are still in a very dangerous world, full of risks, full of risks of also this absolute evil when all humankind can uh, be destroyed. And when the founding fathers of UN were kind of creating this uh, philosophical and ideological framework, they were thinking about human beings both as evil and good. And that's very realistic uh, view. We have good and bad sides. We can love, but we can hate. Uh, we can make love, we can raise children, we can educate and make science, but on the, at the same time we can kill, we can uh, torture, we can rape, and this is, uh, uh, this is what human being is. So in a way, 
politics is the sphere of creativity, when we can limit the worst of us and support the best of us. And this is what was done these three generations ago by creating United Nations. And today, and I agree with many critiques of United Nations and contemporary international order, that UN is in crisis. But saying this UN is in crisis does not mean we should abolish UN. We should abolish the vision of humanity altogether. We should look for new forms uh, and new ideas that would make UN work much better. And here, I, I think one of the most interesting thinkers turned out to be Pope Francis. His recent encyclics about the brotherly love in politics and in society that we live today, he, he speaks about the possibility of good politics, something that charms me for a long time. Ten years ago, we founded this Foundation for Good Politics. It's already something, a project that was closed in 2013. But for several years, we tried to bring together scholars, idealists, and practitioners, politicians, decision makers, in Ukraine, of course. But it it was a a very prospective project that failed just because this mainstream was about polarization, of taking sides, of politicization of everything. And by doing so, uh, Ukrainian society from within was undermining its unity and the political order, which was, not, which was very uh, unjust, let's, let's put it this way. But One second. Are... Thank you so much. This is so exciting. And I love this. And please continue. But I have a comment or question for you to comment on. My understanding, you spoke about politics as in the management, if any way, through brotherly love or Philadelphia. I think that's the word for it. That uh, humans have a really like dark side, which would be a Carl Jungian concept of the shadow, as well as a good side. And politics is about managing and limiting and reducing the risks from that dark side and allowing that good side or angelic side to shine. But also there are thinkers who would disagree with this. For example, if I might quote uh, Steven Pinker in his book from 2011, which is The Better Angels of Our Nature, that he's saying this, look, uh, in communication and in, me- in media, what is exceptional or uncommon is what gets communicated because it stands out. And therefore, all the violence you see in the world is actually the exception, not the rule. And that his tracking throughout history, that through reason and evolution and everything, actually human beings are a lot more peaceful and a lot less violent than we think or that they used to be. And that the world is moving towards the direction of non war and that there are a lot more people in the world who are reasonable and going for peace than what we think. And of course, you mentioned that there is a watch that is saying we're almost at a critical junction that can destroy humanity. But these thinkers are saying the opposite. What is your answer to this and what is your comment about it? Well, I would agree with uh, Pinker. Would I only be a philosopher and would I only use 
general models, statistical data. But I started my life as a village doctor. I graduated from the uh, medical school, yet in Soviet Union. I was uh, among the boys that were co-opted by uh, the medical school to be sent to the Afghan war, to the Soviet-Afghan war. Thanks God I received my diploma several months after the withdrawal of forces. But we were kind of, for four years, we were trained to go to war and to, uh, to, to be on the battlefield and uh, save the lives of those wounded uh, soldiers. And when everything uh, like didn't work and we were sent, instead of army, we were sent around to the faraway villages. So instead of serving to army, we were serving to the nation through, uh, through the services, medical services uh, in remote areas. And there, as a young, very young man, uh, was dropped in the middle of nowhere and who was uh, taking care about a thousand villagers. I knew and I saw how the order, it was 1990, so the end of Soviet Union, how the political order by being destroyed provokes people to become much more harmful, uh, to destroy themselves and each other. So I remember how sober and good family men started drinking, using drugs, beating their wives. I remember how uh, girls from good families suddenly were uh, entering the criminal communities, how criminal communities were becoming the dominant form of unity for late Soviet, post-Soviet humans in order to survive. It was basically, I, I was witnessing how the civilization with culture, with science uh, was disappearing. And then this criminality, disorder, anarchy was entering uh, instead. And actually that was the impetus that brought me to the philosophical department. I needed, well, of course, Soviet uh, philosophy was close to non-existent. And I wanted to have uh, other ideas, Western philosophy, Greek philosophy, Eastern philosophy, in order to look for answers that I had at that time. And uh, this is very different when you are immersed into the broken social reality, into the creative destruction of revolutionary periods. It's very different uh, point of view than the statistician or big models point of view like Pinker's. So by trying to bring them these two views, two models together, I come up as empiricist philosopher empiricist who believes in human creativity and who thinks that even today we are equally good and bad. We have radical evil in us and we have radical good in us. And uh, it, political and social systems can give our halves a more energy or less energy. When we look at Ukraine today, uh, we see we can see that uh, it's actually the country, the state, the political community that has that is organized not entirely about common good but also common bad. This resentment to each other, 
to different groups that exist in contemporary Ukraine destroys the commonality. So in order, you, you can you can dissociate yourself and hide and go as a hermit somewhere, and philosophers have a tendency to do so. Or you can actually try and like contrast, fight with these uh, anthropic uh, activities. And of course, uh, the voice of one, which I was trying to do in like 10 years, eight years ago, is nothing. So you need a community. Even if our community is small, we, we still uh, look forward to, to help these groups within big societies and small societies to have their voice, to have their respect, and to make their life a little bit less dark than it is now in Eastern Europe. I love it. It reminds me of an old Shiroki story that inside each one of us, there are two wolves. One is evil, one is good. And which one will be the dominant one is the one you feed the most. And in some ways, the voice of, yes, the voice of one, what you said, or feeding him just one drop or whatever is not enough. What you need is a community because the unity of many people will have a louder voice, more impact, more pooled resources, and more ability to affect the future because you are dealing with huge forces that are also unities and groups and maybe institutions or cultural and structural uh, challenges and structures that are too big for one person to stand against even though the story of David and Goliath exists, but that's not the reality. You need another Goliath against Goliath. So that's what you're building in a way. It's a peaceful Goliath that will be strong enough to stop this uh, downward spiral towards war. And as an empiricist, you have noticed when you were working as a doctor and caring for a thousand people that when things got chaotic and you mentioned the word entropy which mm. seems to be something that you think about often then good people who were good in every way will s slide towards that evil wolf and feed that and let it grow and that's not what we want if we want the future generations to have a more peaceful and better uh, world and therefore to ask you more you share your thoughts, you bring together your uh, pocket of people, as uh, Seth Godin will say, you're finding your people and creating this kind of community of thinkers that each is enriching through their perspective, what is going on, what will happen, how to behave and do so that you're not like you had empirically been one person in a a village or a small community going crazy and you being one you probably had the direct experience of feeling powerless and vulnerable against so much chaos and evil and therefore you need the strength of the many in order to not let that happen anymore so now in addition to this community what kinds of thoughts experiments initiatives are being talked about that maybe will impact and reduce the likelihood of that dangerous war um, war happening? Well, <clears throat> about 10 years ago, this interdisciplinary group of scholars 
sociologists, political scientists, international relations scholars, and philosophers came together and organized a journal that is called the Ideology and Politics Journal. So in a way, uh, this group of scholars wanted to understand what is going on with the post-communist, post-socialist societies. Like five, six generations ago, our societies fought for socialism. The Bolshevik experiments, the Stalinist revolution, the the, uh, Khrushchev change, the Brezhnev counter-revolution, and the Gorbachev counter-counter-revolution. So in a way, there was a long period uh, of socialist experimentation with ideology being total, being strong, dominant, and used by the state against human beings. And it was interesting what's happening with us after the state has lost its power to control the ideology. So this journal is being published like once or twice a year. It's open uh, access. So if our audience wants to read the research that we publish, can go and access it. But for me, it's also a metaphysical story. So in a way, when the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc was dissolved, the ideology did not disappear. It was fragmented. There was a competition who will control it in the future. So if you read, for example, reformists of education in 1990s in different states, in Ukraine, in Russia, in Lithuania, you will see that this post-Soviet states wanted to become somewhat a little bit like a new Soviet Union. They want to control education. They want to control science. They want to control scientists. Uh, they didn't have enough resources in 1990s. But today, in these days, governments add and allocate so much resources to controlling ideas, thoughts. So this ideological turn has actually took place. And uh, my lesson from, from these studies is that Soviet Union has dissolved, but Soviet society started living in 20-something new forms in these new post-Soviet states and post-socialist states. And this is why this curve of development with the return to ideological societies is happening not only in Russia, where the the core of the Soviet uh, gravitation kind of left, but also in Hungary, also in Poland. And Ukrainian decommunization laws are actually the ideological laws as well. And it's also interesting how smart were the founding fathers of uh, post-Soviet countries, first of all, Ukraine. If you look at the constitution, not as just some document for the lawyers and politicians, but as a text with the lessons and promises of the gone generation to the new generation of Ukrainians. And there, in certain articles, we see these lessons. So this is why the founding fathers made a special clause. The government will not have ideological power. Government shall not have um, censorship, and so on. So they kind of understood, they, they had an intuition that new states may return to Soviet practices. 
and they tried to do as much as possible in order to prevent it. So this constitution, uh, constitutional dimension is very important. And constitutionalism in philosophy, in political practice, in everyday life is hugely important. Thank you. And I have to speak about a concern. There are many writers, especially those who speak about, you know, are more of the Carl Jung uh, school of thought and psychotherapy and everything. They say, look, when ideology, like you said, the government should not intervene with it. When it was lost, what happened is that there is an existential crisis and loss of meaning for mm-hmm. most humans in this era. And right. therefore, they try to replace that religion by whether becoming gang members and having meaning there or by becoming uh, hooligans and football fans in destructive ways or even through consumerism whereby belonging to some brands like Apple or uh, brands like Harley-Davidson, they recapture a bit of that meaning. And therefore, there is a lot of loss in the ideology, which means, of course, I'm not saying that the state should control it. No. But the thing is, there was so much structured ideology and enforcement before that it turned into the opposite, where there is almost of a drive away from any ideology, but the archetypal subconscious need is there, which will latch on into anything that has some resemblance to it. How? What is your comment on this? What is your thought on this? And how can this be in a way influenced to return people to a more of a peaceful cooperative direction rather than polarization, which actually is a way for them to find meaning by finding that heaven and hell and the uh, sinner and the good people from uh, the uh, religion. But they use it sometimes like in America in politics where someone becomes, okay, this is our religion. We are the alt-right or whatever. Our prophet is X person. I don't want to say any specific names. (laughs) And those others are our enemies and they must die like is in all previous old uh, religious texts. Thank you, Abdulaziz. It's a good point. It's a good question. So basically, my point is that there are no good ideologies. There are bad ideologies or less bad ideologies. Let's put it this way. But the, in the bigger picture, we should see that human life can be authentic or not authentic. Authentic, it means working with reality of yourself, of your small group, of your big group, of the place you live in, and, well, to express yourself, to realize yourself. It's being a a theist, being a secular thinking thinker, I think that uh, we live only one life. And during this lifetime, we have to express ourselves. To, uh, to be a human being means to create, to give. And this is the moment in, in this giving and in, in this uh, creation, we live authentic lives with, with efforts, not always ready to these efforts, not always doing good in, in the end, but still we are able to go the authentic way. And there are non-authentic ways, and ideologies are uh, are those. 
in a way we when we call ideology is something very very ancient it's a new word a modern word for something very old so for me I, ideology is the representation of ancient gods uh, the traditional gods who ruled the human life so there was a tradition that prescribed for everyone born as a human uh, to go through certain rites to, to certain habits in this period of your life you you do this in this period of your life you do that you are part of this collective individuality human being is not actually an individual it's the collective that lives it's the totem that lives it's this uh, common god that lives in modern times the old gods are gone and they return in form of these uh, political beliefs or social beliefs ideologies that try to use our lifetime well and it's short 60 to 80 years and even this short time of life they try to suck it out our humanity and dedicate it to different types of activities to to this hyperpatriotism whichever country we take it's there or to the capital the, the, the capital itself is this black hole that sucks out the human life and uh, the closer you stay so if you are a capitalist you are much more subsumed to the uh, toxicality or re radioactivity of uh, of the capital and the further you are you kind of have more chances to return to authentic life and one second one second this is very beautiful i have to ask you there is a branch in science called mimetics where in it actually they say that in reality humans are just hosts not even of dna but of memes and cultural memes that they try to fight off and propagate and extend to the next generations and inhabit new hosts and that's what you're saying basically through ideology that the individual becomes the the meme or the cultural ideology and that is not the right way it's more about each person individually being a creator rather than a receiver of that meme or of that cultural paradigm telling him how to live who to be which totally shuts down his brain and makes him become more of a robot or a host to a parasite which is that bigger ideology or the god or totem telling him what to do and that in returning to individuality and to thought and making your own thinking that is how to be authentic because you are expressing what you were born in this earth to do which is to look around think through and decide based on what life should be that is meaningful to you rather than be in a, a passive receptor to what others have decided or to the ancient gods or to the modern ideologies is this a way that represents in a way a deeper belief that you have and is the community the value of it is not just to have a common ideology the community of philosophers and i am sure you use the word philosopher deliberately because some would say that a philosopher means if you go back to the root of the word a lover of wisdom but other people will say it's the process of being a thinker for yourself and uh, a thought leader by leading yourself through thought and sharing thoughts 
about life with others, which allowed them to in, to enrich their own blind spots to see what's happening there and to take it through, not believe it totally, but use it as fuel for their own thought to express the next evolution authentically. Can you comment on this, please? Well, uh, in a way, what you say has a lot of truth in it, but still humans are from empirical point of view, humans are the only beings. There are no gods, there are no ideologies. It's us humans that exist. But then there's something else there that tries to take over us. So this parasite uh, metaphor can work, but in a way, uh, humans are often willing to accept these parasites. Because to be yourself, to be authentic, is a labor. It's a lot of efforts. You, need, you really need to, to work, to, to apply the energy. I still remember uh, in this uh, nearby village, there was another doctor. I was, what, 21, 22 at the time. And uh, this, uh, my colleague, the senior colleague, he was almost 90 years old. And in 1990, it means that he saw all the ills of 20th century. He survived through it. And he still had, he was not philosopher. He was doctor and the real wise. He lived and served to this little community of 1,000 villagers. And they knew that they they can make mistakes. They can make bad things. But when they need support, when they need rectification, they can always go to this doctor. I still remember that everyone called his Kuzmovich, so by his patronymic. So Kuzmovich will help you out. He will help you survive the hangover, the intoxication, the bad disease. And then he will give you a wise, wise uh, advice. And this would make your life a little bit easier. So for me... Uh, people like Kuzmovich is actually the, the real heroes who live their own life in authentic way, but also help others to overcome non-authentic uh, influences. And yes, he, he was outside of all ideologies. He was against communists and capitalists, nationalists and uh, cosmopolitans. He was the person. And probably you were mentioning Jung several times today. I think Jung, by end of his life, when in, in our Aeon, in his book, he says that he gone through this individuation process until he reached this uh, god, almost god, goddess uh, status, androgenic god. Uh, I think Kuzmovich, in his own way, has gone through the same individuation process, and he was a supporter to life in very difficult situations and in difficult times. I would love to reach out to to people with the same function, but I think I still have to work much more. I love it because I was going to ask whether the role model that you try to be is more of a modern day or your own version of that Kuzmovich, where you are outside of the matrix, but you both help people within the matrix to have an easier time or a less less painful life, as well as through your thoughts and understandings and vision, you give them the possibility to find a way out 
where they will return to the truth and the reality that the only thing that exists are human beings and that the matrix only exists because we have accepted it or the individual forgot their individuality and in a way it's a, a long road to return home to the essence and the reality of realizing you are you you can return home to be in who you are and forget all these ideologies and things like that but now i have to ask if you believe in the individual and in individuation so much why is it necessary to have politics that will control the negative sides of humans and try to allow that positive side if it seems to me that it's good to be an individual but if we are individuals and if we accept the premise that humans have those two wolves then being an individual is not just a good thing it's just given freedom to a person to either allow their good um, sh uh, good wolf or evil wolf to be out and we don't know if we don't control it maybe all the individuals will return and they will think wow i have so much power i can be evil and that is not something that you stand for but at the same time it seems like to be paradoxical can you speak about this well uh being an individual doesn't mean to be alone you are individual with the other individuals and you are in the world that is difficult sometimes immensely difficult in order to survive you need the shooter of the other person and that means uh that and also i i told you about this creativity to be means to be creative and this self expression goes in different ways in sexuality in intimacy in the family in religion in science and it also goes in politics where politics is basically this very narrow part of our life but also very important because there the voices of different individualities come to a pinnacle yes this highest of the goods that aristotle tells us this highest of the goods or the worst of the goods this biggest evil can be done there as well so if you not participate in the in the politics then the chances of be uh, of big bads of highest of the bads to become the the guiding principle of the political sphere is possible so by not participating in the political process you actually support the worsening the the victory of the evil so you cannot do this you have to participate although uh, this participation can cause you a lot of troubles so in a way philosophers by participating in politics you usually end up being a dissident it started with plato and socrates you remember socrates was killed by the the democracy the athens and the athens were ready to kill another uh, philosopher uh, aristoteles aristoteles is uh, running away from um, the athens and he says this famous uh, expression uh, i i leave athens just to not just to make sure that athenians will not have second sin against philosophy so this is a contradictory uh, statement but this is how the life is there is no harmony in life it's chaos and in our lifetime we can make a little bit more order 
bring it into this darkness of this chaos a little bit more light and only for the lifetime that we live. But it's worth of doing it. Be yourself and help the others be. I love what you're saying. And in some way, I'm hearing something that I read a while ago and that touched me that power doesn't corrupt by itself. It just attracts the corruptible. And therefore, like what you said, we have to be involved in politics. Otherwise, if we shy away from it, we become hermits who stay in their cave. What is left is the corruptible people running towards politics and making the big decisions without thought for the individual. Therefore, people should both control their evil side as well as be involved in the decisions that will impact the group of individuals without thinking about ideology, etc. And therefore, that will create a better future for everyone. And I love really this discussion. It can go on forever and ever. Can you share some final words about your work where people can listen more or read more about your thoughts and philosophies, as well as what is the best way if people wish to communicate with you? Well, first of all, I recommend to follow our Koine community. And... Well, if you're interested, you can look at uh, my website where I try to keep as many publications open as possible. And it's uh, www.minakovphilosophy.com. But uh, I, I am just one of the people who is as lost as any other. And I, I understand that I'm lost. I make mistakes. I, I quite often feel stupid. And uh, what I would recommend is to think more. Yes, reading, also reading my text is good, but think and feel. Think and feel. Try to make sense out of your life by feeling what are you driven to. How the being, your existence is speaking to you. I love that because there are some ancient texts that say for you to find the standard in your life, Pay attention to what makes you feel emotions, whether anger, happiness, or whatever. There is something in there that tells you what your values are, what your true thoughts and standard that you will be known for and you should live your life to create, as well as I love what you're saying about the fact that we are living in chaos and what we do throughout this life is to create organization and organize as much as possible. And in many ways, that is the role of human beings. If you study the evolutionary, whether psychology or sciences, what humans did is we went into the chaos of uh, the savanna or forest and we determined a perimeter where we create order inside of it. And that is really the essence of what humans do against the chaotic life is choose a part and be responsible for bringing order into it for yourself as well as the people who are there so that all individuals can be safe and thrive and have the good things happen rather than be separated in the chaos of being at risk of being attacked by predators at any time and having no sense, which creates an existential crisis because I believe the deepest fear for human beings is the unknown. And the more you can bring some known, the more peace you can have so that your brain can open up 
the, to the, its creative side rather than being on the Maslow's hierarchy on the lowest level where you don't even have security because life is too chaotic to make any sense. So sense equals security and security allows you to uh, go to self-actualization and self-transcendence. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and I wish you a brilliant day. Thank you, Abdulaziz. Thank you.